addressing this issue. You can't eat meat in an idol temple. The Corinthians say, yes, we can. Paul says, no, you can't. In chapter 8, he gives an ethical reason because you may cause your brother and sister to stumble. In chapter 9, he gives this example, personal example of um, sacrificing or limiting his own freedom as an expression of love to others. And then in chapter 10, he pretty much hits him over the head and says, listen, you can't do this. In chapter 8, it sounds like he's maybe making a suggestion. I'd rather you not. If the circumstances are this, then probably a good idea if you didn't do this. In chapter 10, he just flat says, you can't do what you're doing. You can't go to these temples any longer and participate in these meals. We won't get through the whole chapter today. We're just going to look at the first 13 verses. So starting in verse 1, for I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. So what's going on in chapter 10? Paul's tying back into ch- the last thing he said in chapter 9 was, I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to run this race and then not be and get disqualified from the prize at the end because I didn't do well. In the beginning of chapter 10, what he's saying to them is, I don't want y'all to be disqualified either. And so the way he's making his argument is he's drawing a parallel between the Israelites in the Old Testament and the Corinthians now. And so he's saying, this is what happened with the Israelites. They're very similar to you. Y'all both have received spiritual blessings. You both are spiritually privileged. Y'all have been baptized. You were baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Israelites were baptized kind of in quotes as well. They were baptized into Moses. They, this, the cloud represents the presence of God. The sea walking through the Red Sea, that's the water. So see, just like y'all, they were baptized. Y'all take communion like we just did. The Israelites, they did the same thing. They had this food, this manna that came down from heaven. They got water from a rock in the desert. So see, both of y'all have gotten this spiritual food, this spiritual drink. Y'all have a deliverer. It's Jesus. They had a deliverer. It's Moses. Y'all are the same. They're similar. They're points of contact there between the Israelites and the Corinthians. That's all that's going on. You don't want to push these pictures too hard and too far. What Paul's trying to do is just he's trying to get them to see y'all, Corinthians, Israelites, y'all were the same. Spiritual blessing, place of spiritual privilege, but that didn't guarantee anything. That didn't guarantee results. He says most of them were scattered in the desert. Actually, all but two. Joshua and Caleb were the only two Israelites who made it out of the desert into the promised land. Remember, that was the goal. We're going to deliver you from Egypt. I'm going to lead you into this promised land. It was supposed to be a pretty short trip. They rebelled along the way. A short trip turned into 40 years, and everybody died in the desert. Moses, Aaron, all of them, except Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two who God found faithful through the whole thing and who wound up in the promised land. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, Just like the Israelites, baptism, communion, spiritual heritage, spiritual blessing, spiritual privileges, just like that wasn't enough to guarantee them inheriting the prize, so your spiritual blessings, your spiritual inheritance, your spiritual privileges aren't enough to guarantee that you will either. Verse 6, now keep these things as examples. Excuse me, now these things occurred as, as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as the Israelites did. Now he's going to give them four examples of what the Israelites did wrong. Don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Example two, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. 
And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Example three, we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And example four, and don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. We don't have time to go back and look at all of those stories. They're in Exodus and Numbers. They're there. You can footnote that and go back and look at those stories. For us, what's important is Paul is saying, all of this stuff happened to them, and you need to learn from what happened to them. Don't think that you're better than they are. They committed idolatry with the golden calf. Moses goes up on a mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He comes back, and they've made this calf out of gold. It's a pretty interesting story. He asks his brother Aaron what happened. He says, I don't know. These people gave me gold. I threw it into the fire, and a calf jumped out. Amazing how those things happen. So that's what, and then they're worshiping this thing. And what Paul says to them is you're in danger of doing the same thing. You're going to these meals, these feasts, and these temples of false gods. Yes, in chapter 8, he said they're not gods. But in verse 20 of chapter 10, he says this. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. We'll look at that more in a couple of weeks. But what he's saying to them now is that's, that's idolatry. You're engaging in worship with demons. You cannot do that. Just like the Corinthians or the Israelites couldn't worship a golden calf, you can't worship these false gods. Sexual immorality. Again, if you look back at the um, golden calf story, that was an element of what was going on there. In these pagan temples, the same thing happened. They all had, they called them temple or shrine prostitutes. And after the meal or the feast, that was an element of what would happen in their, in their worship. And Paul is saying, you can't know. That's a sin. God punished them for doing it. He'll punish you for doing the same thing. Don't test God. If you look at verse 22, he says, Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Just like the Israelites were testing God in terms of worshiping this golden calf, grumbling against him, so the Corinthians are doing the same thing and attending these temple feasts. And then he says, Don't grumble. The, the Israelites grumbled against Moses. He's not a good leader. We wish we'd just go back to Egypt. We don't like the food that we're eating. Just griping, griping, griping. And God killed some of them for it. He judged them for that. And that judgment was death. The Corinthians are doing the same thing to Paul. He's not really an apostle. He's not really our father. He's not that spiritual. He doesn't have any right to speak into our life. And Paul's saying, listen, God judged them for that. He can judge you for that as well. Verse 11. These things, all of those four things that we just listed, happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. That's interesting. To whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's the same thing he said in verse 5 and 6. He's basically saying don't be cocky. You've got to pay attention to what's going on. Just because you've experienced certain spiritual things, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to win the race. That doesn't guarantee that you're not going to be disqualified. You have to pay attention to your behavior. If you begin to do these things then you, you can expect judgment from God. Just like the Israelites who had the same spiritual foundation that you did, they experienced judgment from him. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Paul is saying here, there's this temptation that you have towards idolatry. It's not insurmountable. It's not the most difficult thing anyone has ever faced in the history of the earth. It's common. It's the same thing every Christian everywhere faces. And there's a way out. There's a way through for you. And it's that you don't go to the temple. 
you just you don't show up. That's verse 14. Flee from idolatry. This temptation towards idolatry, the way out of that, the, pro, the provision God has for you to not fall into that sin is you should avoid the circumstance. It would be similar to an alcoholic. Just, you stay out of the bars. That's what you, you don't see how close you can get. You just stay out of the place. And that's what Paul is saying to them. You just stay out of the temple. Stay away from these meals. And then this temptation, then that's how you overcome this temptation towards idolatry. Yes, it will be difficult. We said before, these temples were the restaurants of their day. All of the social scene was in these places. That's where people had birthday parties and anniversaries and celebrate. All of that stuff happened in these temples at these meals. And so it would be a sacrifice for the Corinthians to say no. It would cost them socially to say, listen, I can't go. But what Paul is saying is that's the way out. God's made a way. Just don't show up. That's the way to avoid this temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's Jesus. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. When we're born, we're born crooked. Our wills are bent towards ourself and sinfulness. And for a short period of time, you can resist this natural inclination that you have. But over time, you're going to sin. And every one of you can give a personal testimony. Yes, I've sinned at some point in my life because you're bent that way. And I'm bent that way. And everyone minus Adam, Eve, and Jesus who has been born was bent that way towards sin. We become Christians. Our wills get straightened out. And we can choose righteousness. But Paul, you don't have to sin anymore. The, the spirit of Jesus lives within me and lives within you. You're not bound to sin. You're not a slave to sin any longer. You can choose righteousness. Now, none of us achieve sinless perfection. We don't. We continue to stumble and struggle and we continue to sin. But, but I'm saying theoretically, we don't have to. That's what Paul is saying. You don't have to do that anymore. There's a way out. There's a way through. God's made a way and through the death and resurrection of his son. That, that's it. It's taking a bent will and making it straight. And then you have a choice, a legitimate choice to make. Are you going to give in to temptation or are you not? And over time, as we grow, hopefully, we give in to temptation less and less frequently. So a couple of things from this. One, I would say, notice the role that Paul play, has the Old Testament play. All of these things happen for y'all. That's what he's saying to them. All of this stuff that these guys went through, it was all written down for you so you wouldn't do the same thing. And it's the same thing for us. I, I read y'all's cards that you wrote, the things that you're giving up and taking on for Lent. Many of you wrote down more time in the Word, Bible study, um, time in the Bible, that type of thing. My encouragement to you during Lent as you spend more time in the Word is to sprinkle in some Old Testament. That's real life real people with God interacting with them. You don't get that necessarily in the New Testament. The New Testament, most of it's letters. And so it can tend to be a little more uh, heady type stuff. You don't get that. The Old Testament reads like a story. You make a book or make a movie out of Genesis. You can't make a movie out of Galatians. It would be very boring. It would be somebody reading a letter. That's not what Genesis is. It's here's Abraham, here's Isaac, here's Jacob, here's Joseph, here's them living life. Everyone in the Old Testament, they're all flawed. Every one of them has flaws, and the Bible doesn't whitewash them. You see them, warts and all, and so we can relate to them because we're all flawed as well. So my encouragement to you, spend a little time in the Old Testament. Don't read Leviticus. 
Don't read Zechariah. Don't read Haggai. Genesis from chapter 12 to chapter 50. 1 through 11, you're going to get in the weeds with creation evolution. So avoid that, 12 through 50. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Read Exodus. That's Moses. Actually, yeah, read Exodus, first half of it. Then read Deuteronomy. That's Moses. Read Joshua. It's about Joshua. Judges is a train wreck. I would skip that at this point if you've never read it. It is. Ruth, Esther, very good books. Esther is actually the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned. Pretty interesting to read that and to see how God is at work even when you don't see him at work. Very good book. Esther, Ruth, um, First and Second Samuel, you get Samuel, you get Elijah, you get Saul, you get David, First and Second Kings. That can get a little tricky trying to keep up with who's where. I would focus on First and Second Samuel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Very good books as well. My encouragement, you pick up one of those things. Look at it for the characters. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Obviously, all of the books in the Old Testament are good. What I'm trying to say is grab onto these characters because you can see how God works in the lives of people. And that's what Paul is saying. You want to see how Corinthians, you want to see how God works in the life of people. Look at what he did in the Isra- to the Israelites. He's the same the yesterday, today, and forever. So the, what you, can, you can base how he may treat you, what he expects from you, how he works in the world now on what you see in Genesis and in Deuteronomy and in 2 Samuel. So spend some time reading those. I'd encourage you. These things are a little pricey. I think it's worth the money. A study Bible. If you go to a Christian bookstore, um, there's a lot of them. There's, a, there's, uh, there's an NIV study Bible, a New Living Translation study Bible, a King James. Whatever translation you get, there's a type of Bible called a study Bible, and it will say study Bible on it. They cost about $40, which is expensive, but all of you probably gave up sweets and Starbucks and all of that. So put that money towards a Bible for just do that. It's got notes at the bottom that are very helpful. They give you some historical background. They explain some terms that none of us know. Like any of you, anybody know what an omer is? None of us know. It'll tell you this is what an omer is. So when you read it, you can understand it. And it'll give you um, introductions to the books. You can get a feel for what's going on. Again, they're a little pricey. Whoa, sorry. They're a little pricey. I think they're 40 bucks. That was God saying go buy one. But <laughs> I would encourage you to do that. And if you need help, if you ever need help with anything like that, picking out a Bible, come talk to me. I'll be more than happy to help you figure out something that uh, hopefully will work for you. So anyway, Old Testament, that's one thing. Second thing, this idea, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out that you can stand up under. You may have heard somebody say, and you may have said yourself, God won't give you more than you can handle. That sentiment is based on this verse. Now, if you believe that, I'm about to make you feel kind of small. So I don't, so just know that going in. That my intention is not to be disrespectful to anyone, but I think that's actually a pretty silly statement that God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not what this says. And I think it actually does, it's, I think it does a disservice to God to hold on to that. I'm going to a funeral tomorrow at one, and if the pastor stands up and says to this grieving family, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. I don't know what that does for them. I don't know how that brings any comfort to them in the moment. It sounds like because you guys are so spiritually strong and emotionally mature here, I'm going to dump some tragedy on you because you can bear up underneath it. I don't know what father functions 
in that way. As your kids grow up, you make life progressively more difficult for them because suddenly they can handle it. I can't think of a stronger disincentive for growth. I want you to grow. I want you to become more like Jesus. I want you to become spiritually mature and emotionally strong. And then God's going to send a bunch of junk your way because you can handle it. Who wants to join the club? Nobody. Is there, again, is there a more, is there a greater disincentive? The more I grow, the more bad stuff I'm going to be, have to experience because suddenly God deems me able to handle those things. I think it, it, the source of our strength, Philippians 4, 13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not I can do all things because I'm spiritually mature or I can do all things because I'm emotionally stable. The source of our strength is Jesus, not our own personal spiritual maturity. Uh, Lamentations 3, you may have heard this verse at a, at a funeral, this passage. I remember my affliction and my wandering, my bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. So my life is terrible. This is the reason I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations, what he's saying is, everything is falling apart for me. My hope is not in my own spiritual maturity. My hope is not in my emotional maturity. My hope is not in the fact that if God's brought this my way that I can handle it. My hope is in the faithfulness of God. Paul says the same thing in Verse 13, God is faithful. He will make a way for you. The, when we're struggling, when we're in difficult circumstances, when we're suffering, we lean on Jesus. We look to God as our faithful father. We don't look inward at our own resources, emotional, spiritual resources, to see if we have enough to go from A to B. That's the opposite of what God is looking for. He's not looking for us as independent contractors to put our faith on our back and walk through a difficult time. What he's looking for is us as mature sons and daughters to say, this is awful. I'm suffering. I don't know why, but you're still faithful. I know that. And so I'm just going to hang on until my circumstances change. It, to me, you can disagree. To me, it radically misrepresents God to see him as the source of some of this stuff. Versus the one who is faithful to us in the midst of circumstances that he did not cause. So what does it mean? If this passage doesn't mean that God won't give you more than you can handle, what could it mean? That word translated temptation in verse 13 is used 20 times in the New Testament. And it's translated temptation, tested, and tried. There's kind of a, a sibling to that word. It's also translated all three ways. I think it's used 34 times. In the New Testament, we're not going to get into some Greek study here other than for us to hear that temptation, testing and trial are all all very closely related to one another. And my contention is that the difference between a temptation and a test slash trial, I put those under the same heading. The difference between a temptation and a trial is personal to each one of us. What may be a trial to Brandon could be a temptation to me. What may be a temptation to Kenny could be a trial to me. It's not this hyper-individualistic thing, but I think the nature of sin and the nature of temptation is uh, it's personal for each one of us. This is not, I've mentioned before, I don't 
alcohol is not a temptation for me at all. It wouldn't matter. It doesn't matter where I am. That's not in me. So for some of you who have a history with alcohol, if you were to be in a setting where alcohol is served, that's a temptation. You are tempted to take a drink, which leads to another, which can lead to sin. I'm not at all. That's no temptation for me. At the most, that might be a trial. It's honestly not even that in a lot of respects. For me, though, something uh, publicity, if something, if, if our church is in the paper, that might be a temptation for me towards selfish ambition. Oh, people think we're something. They think we're thus for you. You don't care about that. One way, that's nothing to you. That's kind of this individual nature of temptation. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 13, Jesus says this, lead us not into temptation. In Luke 8, 13, talking about the parable of the soils, he says about this um, seed that takes root in rocky ground. It doesn't have root. He says when the time of testing comes, same word, it falls away. In Galatians 4, 14, when Paul is talking about himself, he's actually thanking the Galatians. He says, my illness, he had some eye problem probably. My illness, even though it was a trial to you, you did not treat me with scorn or contempt. Same word translated three different ways based on the context. So again, for us, I think a lot of it is contextual. Are these circumstances, is this a trial for me or is this a temptation for me? And the way we respond is different if it's a trial or if it's a temptation. This is James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's the same word that we just read as temptation in 1 Corinthians 10. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may, may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. There's that word again. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, we make, James makes the distinction, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So again, I think all of those are from the same word family. Sometimes it's trial, sometimes it's test, sometimes it's temptation. For us, it's, it's contextual. In my own life, what is a trial versus what is the temptation? I'm not big on trying to find the source of things. That might... you. Maybe you want to know where is this coming from? Is this coming from God? Is this coming from Satan? That's that's fine. I feel like that's it's hard to kind of chase that rabbit for long because ultimately you're never going to know. Read Job one and two. What is that? Satan shows up before God and God says, hey, have you thought about Job? Hopefully he never says that about me. Hey, have you thought? No, don't think about me ever. Then have you thought about Job? Well, the only reason he's. Righteous is because you've given him so much stuff. Well, take his stuff away. God draws a line and says, you can't cross this, but for goodness sakes, you know, then read it. Within a matter of hours, everything Job has, kids, flocks, building, all of it's gone. Satan comes back again. Hey, have you thought about Job? Really? The only reason he's with you is because you haven't touched him, skin for skin. All right? Well, you can touch his body, just don't kill him. Again, God draws a line, and then he's afflicted with these boils. And you can read through what happens. And Job, at the end, everything works out. But when Job's in the midst, is that God? Is it Satan? Is it both? Is it I don't know. That's a, again, that's a hard one 
to chase down. And that's with us having the narrator's point of view. When you're in the middle of your life, I don't know how you can discern that type of thing. Where is this coming from? I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. For me, the source is irrelevant. The key is faithfulness. That's the expected result. God expects faithfulness in the midst of trials, which looks like perseverance. And he expects faithfulness in the midst of temptation, which looks like resisting those temptations, saying no to the temptation. To me, it doesn't matter what these things are caused by, who is sending them. That's irrelevant. What matters for me on Tuesday is what does it look like for me to be faithful in the midst of these circumstances? Am I supposed to be persevere through them? Is this something that's a temptation and I'm supposed to run away from it? That, to me, is the key decision, not the source of this. And there are different schools of thought on all that we'll talk about in a second. So, again, for James, I'm not going to get into who caused what. That, to me, is again, that's difficult to pin down. For us this morning, I want you to hear faithfulness is the key. Faithfulness in the midst of a trial is perseverance. Faithfulness in the midst of a temptation is resistance or fleeing getting out of there trials we go through temptations we run from paul says flee from idolatry paul says flee from sexual immorality you don't see how close you can bump up to the line without crossing it you get as far away as you possibly can as fast as you can good things can come from trials perseverance which is necessary if we're going to grow spiritually you have to persevere and the only way to learn to persevere is by persevering there's no other way around that The only way to grow in your capacity to endure is to actually endure. Some of you are long-distance runners. I'm not. My understanding, the only way to build up the capacity to run a marathon is to run a really long way. You don't get it running sprints. You have to run a really long way. And then that enables you to run a really long way. And the same thing is true spiritually. If we're going to persevere to the end, well, then we need to persevere and our capacity will grow. There's nothing positive that comes from a temptation. That's why we run away from them. Nothing good happens over here. The best thing that happens is when you walk away, which means you don't sin. There's no redemptive value in a temptation at all. God doesn't, he's not in that business. He's not tempting us to see if he can lead us into sin. That's diametrically opposed to everything we know about his character and what he wants from us. Trials, yeah, he can be in the middle of that because that's about refining us and growing us and giving good things to us. Temptation, he's not a part of that. And so we don't want to be a part of that either. Trials are they're external difficulties, external circumstances that can cause us difficulty. Maybe you like that better. External circumstances that can cause us difficulty. That's a trial. Temptations are rooted in our heart. They're internal. You've seen uh, rock walls before. Those handholds that you use. Those are the kind of things, that's what temptation grabs onto. The Bible says God can't be tempted. The reason is because it's a sheer face. There are no handholds. There's nothing for temptation. There's nothing for sin to latch onto in God. That's what I said for me, alcohol. That's not a temptation. There's not a handhold in there for me. But there is one for selfish ambition. That's there, and that, that... that can be grabbed onto in me. In God, there's none. So that's why the Bible says he, he wasn't Jesus. He was tempted in every way. He never sinned. There were no handholds in Jesus for the enemy or for his sin. There was nothing to grab onto, for sin to grab onto. 
in him. Again, we treat those things different from one another, a little bit on trials. Trials, are, they're po- they can be positive. They can build perseverance in us, which we need, if we're going to make it to the end. Throughout the Bible, New Testament particularly, you'll hear Jesus, Paul, they say, he who remains faithful to the end will be saved. Paul just said, I don't want to be disqualified, and I don't want y'all to be disqualified. I want you to finish well. Perseverance is necessary. Trials build that in us. They can also, however, sap us of our strength. And that's why it's important to have people who are walking through life with you. If you feel like you're pushing the rock up the hill by yourself, at some point, you're going to get tired and you're going to get crushed. You need other people in your life who you can say, listen, this is what's going on with me. This is where I'm struggling. I need help here. And they can come alongside you spiritually and physically to help you through your trial. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Those things to me tend to pull in opposite directions. If you're providing a way out, then how come I've got to stand up under it? Because I'm out of it. The way out is almost always the way through when it comes to trials and testing. There are no off-ramps. You've got to get all the way through it. That's how perseverance is built. And if you feel like you're doing that on your own, it can be very, very difficult. It can wear you down over time. Tempta- or trials are also a distraction. Matthew 14, the disciples are in a boat. Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Peter says, hey, can I come? All right, come on out. Peter steps out under the water. He starts walking. He's looking at Jesus. Everything's great. The waves, he looks over at the waves, and what happens? He starts to sink. Easy metaphor for us. If my eyes are on Jesus, I don't sink. Once I look at my circumstances, these tests, these trials, then suddenly I do. And that's what trials are, that's what they do to us. Many of you are going through a trial right now. Every one of you, if I asked you in the last three to six months, give every one of you could give me one over the last three to six months on some scale of severity. You've experienced a trial, and you've, you've experienced that enough to know it's the last thing you think about when you go to bed at night. It's the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning. You feel like you've got a wet blanket that you're carrying around through your life. There's this kind of heaviness about it. This thing is always on your mind, and it's, you might not even realize it. It's just gnawing at the back of your mind. That's what happens when we're experiencing these things. It's very easy for that to take our focus off of Jesus. And once we do that, we're done. We begin to sink. And trials do that. We need to figure out how do I maintain my focus on him while I'm walking through this difficult circumstance, emotionally, physically, financially, whatever that happens to look like. I've got to figure out, rather than taking my eyes off him to look at it, I've got to figure out how to bring my trial in focus with him. So I begin to look at it through the lenses of him rather than taking my eyes off of him in order to focus on it. Last thing, I think most devastatingly, um, trials can cause us to question God's goodness, his faithfulness, his love for us. And this to me is, I, I mentioned earlier, I don't think God is in the business of sending evil and bad things our way. Judgment is different. If God is judging you, you're going to experience that as punishment. That's a very rare circumstance where God is doing that, and it's always very plain. There are warnings that come before that. We ignore the warnings, and he says, all right, if you didn't, you didn't listen to the sugar, then maybe you'll listen to the vinegar type thing with us, and that's what judgment is. It's a taste of what's in store for us if we continue to walk in rebellion away from him. But again, there's always warnings. There's things that accompany 
that. It's not punitive. To me, God doesn't, he doesn't send cancer and he doesn't kill babies and he's not sending hurricanes for folks. There, there's a whole realm of Christians who would say, yes, he is sovereign over all things, so ultimately you lay everything at his feet. And you can believe that. That's just not where I live. I live over here in this world that says, no, God redeems everything, but he doesn't cause everything. There are things that happen that he didn't want to happen. He can fix all of it. And so that's what I'm going to focus on is how does he fix it? So you have this circumstance, and I don't care what the source of it is. It's your, that's what's laid in front of you right now. So how does God redeem that for you? What can be difficult in the midst of trials is to begin to, we begin to question whether God loves us, whether he cares for us, whether he notices us. That's a big one. Does God even know I'm here any longer? I've been struggling with X, Y, or Z for so long. I'm wondering if he even knows my name. All of that can happen as you walk through a trial if it's an extended period of time. And again, that's why it's so important to have people in your life who can speak truth to you, encouragement to you, who can speak and be a lifeline to you, a channel of God's grace in so many ways. So that's trials. That's kind of what that looks like. Temptation, again, is it's different. It's internal. Trials, that's something that comes at me from outside. Paul talks about getting beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and being hungry and being poor. Those are trials. Those are all things that are imposed upon him from the outside. Temptation, according to James, is different. It's something going on in here. Sin is looking for something in me to grab onto. And again, there's nothing redemptive about that. What I want to do as a Christian is get rid of as many handholds as I can. I want to have, have a sheer face, too. Nothing for sin to grab onto. So then what in the past maybe has been a temptation for me isn't any longer because there's no... There's nothing for it to grab onto and to get leverage with. We don't want to play around with sin in that way. We talk sometimes about behavior management. Let me just manage my sins. And this is an area where I've struggled, so I'm going to try to discipline myself out of it. You're going to continue to struggle with the same sins until you take care of the thing in your heart that sin is grabbing onto, an easy one. Teenager, teenage guys and college guys, you know, this idea of, of lust, and they say, once I get married, I won't struggle with that anymore. No, no, that's a lie. Lust is not a married single issue at all. It's a heart issue. Your marital status has nothing to do with it. Either there's a handhold in there or there's not. And you can be 15 or you can be 25 or you can be 65 and you can either have the handhold or you can not have the handhold. And the way to deal with it is to get rid of the handhold. And then you stop struggling in that area. That's the goal for us as Christians is to remove those things again because what James says, it's our own evil desires. That's what gets this whole thing started. So I've got to take care of those at the root and then, I'll, then temptation for me becomes much more manageable and I can walk that road. I'm not doomed to failure. Trials go through. Temptations run from. Trials external. Temptations internal. So how do you know the difference? You have to listen to the Lord, as with everything. We want to be led by the Spirit. And we want to be honest enough with ourselves when he can say, listen, this is a, you've got to walk through this, or you've got to run from this. I can't stand up here and give you a rule of thumb. I can't, we can't do that. It's based on your own heart. It's based on the handholds that are in your heart. It's based on your perspective on what's happening in your life. There are multiple 
factors that are all unique to you. And so what we have to do is rely on the Holy Spirit in the midst of those circumstances. What, what, how do I respond to this? Is this a trial that I need to walk through? Is there temptation in the midst of this that I need to run from? And then we've got to be honest enough to hear him and to do what he says. Let's pray. Bo, do you want to do a song or not? Can you? You can? Okay. God, I know that there, I would imagine, dozens of men and women in this room who are experiencing a trial. It might not be a 10. It's a 7. It's a 4. It's enough that it's drawing some attention and some focus. It's enough that it's sapping some of their energy. And my prayer for them is that you would give them endurance. You say in Romans 15 that you give endurance. We don't have to work it up. That's what's different about the spiritual life and running a marathon. It's up to us when we're running to train and to get stronger. And in the spiritual life, it's all grace. We just need to open ourselves up to receive from you. And so my prayer for any in this room who are in the midst of a trial is that in the next five minutes as we sing this song, that you would strengthen them from the inside out that you would give them hope where maybe up to this point there hasn't been any. You would show them the way through. You promise a way through. And I pray, God, that you would show them what that is. My prayer is that the circumstances would change as quickly as they can. But until they do, that we would be people who bear up underneath, who stand firm until the end. And God, I'm certain there as well that there are people who are flirting with danger. They're walking a tightrope with temptation. Maybe they're dressing it up in some way, but that's what it is. God, my prayer for them is they would hear you saying loud and clear, get out of there. Run away. And God, they would be honest enough in their hearts to say, I'm, I am, I'm flirting with sin and I need, to, I need to repent. I need to move away from that. God, for those who struggle with the same things, week after week and month after month. God, my prayer is a removal of those handholds, that they would finally know what it is to be free. And that's nothing that we can do. That's a spiritual work. And we're asking you to do that. That we truly could throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. God, that these handholds that the enemy has grabbed onto for some of us for years would finally be removed. And we wouldn't struggle in the same areas over and over again. So God, all of this is too big for us to do. We're just asking you to come as we worship this last song. For you to come and to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand up. We're going to close with one song of worship.